0: I had the opportunity to meet a young lady who had been a victim of rape, and she talked about the fact that she had been the victim of a gang rape and that she had a child, she had a son, and that whenever her son asked her what clan he belonged to, she wasn't able to express what clan he belonged to because she didn't even know who his father was. It gave that whole issue life to me because I could put a face to those kind of acts and the consequences.
1: From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today once told a senior negotiator not to lecture her about suffering. And as a mediator in South Sudan, she put the plight of women center stage. Hannah Tete, Special Representative of the UN Secretary General to the African Union, welcome to the Mediator Studio.
0: Thank you very much, Adam. And thank you for having me.
1: It's wonderful to have you with us. I'd like to give the audience a sense of the early experiences that led you to a career in mediation and take you back to the time following your graduation from the Ghana Law School. You know, you had a relatively privileged upbringing, if I may say, uh, but then you start providing legal services for women and that opens your eyes to a different world from the one you had known.
0: Yes, very much so. The Practice in Ghana is that when you finish your tertiary education, you do one year of national service. And I did my one year of national service in a legal aid clinic that was providing legal services to women who otherwise couldn't afford it. And what struck me at the time was just how privileged I was and the level of inequality as far as gender relations were concerned in Ghana. And the challenges that women had, whether it was in terms of marital relationships, because we are a society that has, to quite a large extent, polygamous relationships, when it came to maintenance of children, but when it also became to do with issues of safety and gender-based violence and the way in which both women and children were having difficulties and were very much under attack in their homes and had very few options, simply because they didn't have the money to afford legal services. And that made me very much aware of the fact that there was so much that needed to be done in order to bridge that gap between the sexes and then to create an opportunity for women to also be able to thrive and to claim their rights when there was the opportunity
1: and the need to do so. So yes, that was very much a formative experience for me. And you work later on to try to relieve that injustice that you describe, but you know, this is after practicing several years of law, uh, and then you enter politics. You know what drove you to switch careers?
0: Actually, it was my my late father. He was the one who persuaded me to contest for the parliamentary elections in uh, my constituency. And initially I wasn't particularly keen on on doing so because I had a good career I had small children but um, unfortunately my father passed away because he had a heart attack I felt I owed it to him to try because it was about the last thing that we you know discussed with each other and that's really how I got into politics but it was a good platform to now to be able to look beyond working and dealing with these cases as they came by, but at the same time being in a position to be a legislator and to be able to contribute to the debate on changing the legal frameworks in the country to make them more gender-friendly. Now, that's not to say it was an easy thing to do. That's not to say that it was at all a solo effort because I was one young member of parliament among 200 other members of parliament, but it gave me the opportunity to make my voice heard and also to Articulates on issues I felt strongly about. And that was the beginning of my political career.
1: And you rise quite quickly up that political ladder. Uh, and as, after some time as trade minister, you become foreign minister. Uh, and you start dealing with some serious conflicts in the region, you know, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Burkina Faso. You know, did you come away from that with a more defined view about what works and doesn't work to address conflicts in Africa?
0: At the time when I was foreign minister, my president was chair of the authority of ECOWAS heads of state and government. And uh, consequently, I became the chair of the ECOWAS council of ministers. And in the year and a half that we occupied that position, we dealt with the transition in Guinea-Bissau, the transition in Mali and the Inter-Malian Dialogue, the transition in Burkina Faso and also the outbreak of Ebola. And so you can imagine that it was quite eventful to add that to all of the things that we were dealing with as far as our own foreign policy priorities were concerned. But having a front row seat and being able to take an active part in a lot of those discussions around those political challenges, of course, opened my mind again and made me much more aware of the challenges of dealing with multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious societies, and the stresses that they were going through. And at the same time, the way in which external actors were also impacting national situations.
1: So you're doing that work on behalf of your government, also, as you mentioned, in the capacity of ECOWAS, the regional organization in, in that part of Africa. And you're also doing it in conjunction with others like the UN. I mean, from those various conflicts that you had to deal with, what did you see that actually worked in terms of trying to at least reduce the level of suffering in those places?
0: In order to be able to arrive at a political consensus, you needed to be able to engage a variety of stakeholders. And you needed to be able to have that consensus that was more than just an elite bargain in order to be able to have the platform to move forward. If there's one thing that stands out for me, that is what it is. And when you have experienced mediators and experienced political actors who understand that and who can help to identify who those key stakeholders are in order to be able to reach out to them and involve them in the process,
1: it helps to move it along. Meanwhile, at home as Foreign Minister, you took action to promote women in leadership roles. Tell me more. It was necessary to be able to
0: reflect that we had both competent men and women in the Foreign Service of Ghana who were capable of representing our country and representing our country effectively. And I felt that it was important to give both men and women the opportunity to be able to serve. The president has the right to appoint political appointees, but it is the foreign minister who recommends career diplomats. And so the decision that I made was to make sure that the recommendation of career diplomats for appointment would be on a 50-50 basis. And so as a result of that, the recommendations I took to the president, as far as the career appointees were concerned, where half of them were female, half of them were male. And he agreed to it. And then, of course, subsequently, we also now have a situation where for the first time, our permanent representative to the United Nations in New York was a woman who was appointed to that position, and she still has that position.
1: Well, that commitment is something you took through to your mediation work as well, particularly in, in South Sudan, as I understand it, which for listeners who might not know the full background of the country, you know, won its independence from Sudan in 2011, but then descended into civil war. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the story of South Sudan has been one of peace agreements made uh, and then broken. And then you step in in late 2017, Hannah, together with two other former foreign ministers to try to revive an agreement that had been made a couple of years beforehand, uh, but hadn't held. And the situation on the ground uh, is dire. You know, there are thousands of people displaced from their homes, many of whom are going hungry. Give us a sense of what you felt you were stepping into.
0: Well, I felt I was stepping into... A situation where you had a society that had so much opportunity but had not been able to realize its promise. And I felt very sad about it because what struck me in the course of that mediation process again was the inequality faced by women and the way in which they didn't really seem to factor in the discussion. And where culturally it was almost as if the issues affecting gender were really not issues that were prioritized
1: adequately. Could you explain in simple terms, essentially, you know, what you and your fellow mediators were, were trying to achieve?
0: Well, essentially, they previously had had an agreement for the resolution of the conflict. This was a 2013 agreement. And on the basis of that, there was a power sharing arrangement. It was going to operate for a limited period of time and they were to prepare for elections. But before the transitional government was able to fulfill its mandate, conflict broke out again. And so that arrangement essentially broke down. And so there was the need now to have a review of that process, try to see if there was the opportunity to put together a new transitional government, have an agreed transitional period that would end in elections and, of course, a government with a clear mandate and the mandate of the people. So, as it were, bringing people back to what they had agreed to previously, reviewing what had worked, looked at what wasn't working, with a view to restructuring the arrangement in order to have a more successful transition this time was um, what we were focused on. And of course, to make sure that there was a cessation of hostilities
1: so that there was an atmosphere of peace. Can you give us an example of how that played out in practice?
0: Well, how that played out in practice was, you know, when any of the parties was making a, a comment on a particular part of the agreement that we were trying to negotiate, And then they would go back into incidents that had happened years before. I would listen for a while, but if I realized that this was really not taking us to the main point of what we wanted to address, I'd quickly bring them back and say, you know, I've listened to you respectfully. I don't see what it is that you have just said that is relevant to our present discussion. Can you kindly address the issue that we want to resolve?
1: I understand that in the course of that, one of the senior negotiators essentially lectured you uh, about the suffering of his people. You know, how did you? deal with that knowing what some of these negotiators and, and conflict parties had had done.
0: I told him I was very much aware of what they were going through, which is part of the reason why we were trying to help them to come to a resolution of the conflict. And I also told him that I was aware of what the challenges were in Sudan before I was appointed as a co-facilitator, because my country had a battalion of soldiers as part of UNMIS, and we had agreed to send a battalion of soldiers To be part of ANMIS when I was still Foreign Minister of Ghana. So he had no lectures to give me about the state of South Sudan, I was very much aware.
1: And uh, how did they react, if I can ask? Because there's, you know, mediators who might have, in other circumstances, shied away from that sort of, I wouldn't call it confrontation, but but sort of, in a sense, calling out a conflict party um, on what they're saying in a negotiation.
0: Well, his first reaction was he was quiet, And then after that, again, I brought it back to the issue. I said, this is what we're trying to address. This is the issue we are trying to resolve. And yes, I'm very much aware that this conflict is ongoing. We don't want it to be ongoing. We want to work with you to have a resolution. And that's why we're here. So let's try and see how we can achieve that.
1: I'm curious about the advantages, Hannah, of being a woman in that context and including the dynamic between your... Co facilitators who were part of the mediation team, you know, all of whom were men apart from you. You know, what would you say were the advantages of being a woman in a negotiation?
0: The difference that it made was that when there were the women in the discussion, especially from civil society, wanted to bring up the gender related issues, I was very much their advocate and I would insist that their voices should be heard and that we should make accommodation for them as well.
1: And and what were their voices saying?
0: Their voices were saying that they also had a right to be at the table, that their issues needed to be resolved, that this needed to be looked at from the perspective of what it was doing to their country, to their society, how it had impacted women, and why this needed to be addressed in the transitional process. In the course of the South Sudan mediation, as a matter of fact, it was on the first day that we started to have the discussion on the agreement for the cessation of hostilities and my co-facilitators and I had taken it in turns to chair the session and in the course of the session of course this issue about gender based violence and the way in which women were suffering as a result of the ongoing conflict and the need for these issues to be addressed came up in the course of the debate and I had quite an exchange with a number of the parties who were representatives of those who were actually involved in the conflict, and especially when there were some efforts to try and create the impression that these were not really issues that were serious. And I I pushed back on that because, of course, because of all of the the previous conversations and, and reviews that I had done, I knew that that was not the case. After we had ended the session for the day and we had walked out of the room, there was this, I could hear someone running and I turned around and there was this young lady and she ran straight into me. Now I'm tall. I am am a little bit overweight, so I'm not the kind of person who would easily be pushed over. But the way in which she came at me and she was so happy that we had actually discussed and dealt with those issues was for me quite a revelation. And it also gives you a sense of the fact that What you're doing is worthwhile if you can, at the end of the day, it means so much to people who are sitting there, maybe not necessarily participating in the debate, but who are listening to everything that is being said.
1: This speaks to an issue that comes up time and again in mediation processes, you know, about how best to include the voices of those who are actually affected by the conflict, you know, and this kind of potential disconnect between the negotiators at the table and those they supposedly represent. You know, what were the efforts that you say that you personally made to kind of understand the lived reality of people affected by the war?
0: I spoke to as many of them as possible whenever I had the opportunity. Throughout that whole period, I I went through, I can't remember how many old interviews of various actors who were now negotiating on behalf of their respective um, groups. And they were all available on YouTube. So these are BBC interviews, Al Jazeera interviews, Franz Van Kat, and all of the things, and going back years to understand their positions on the previous discussions. And of course, the way in which they had addressed some of the current challenges that read, led to the breakdown in law and order and, you know, essentially created a situation where the first transitional government was not able to fulfill its mandate. Whenever I had the opportunity to speak to any, and not necessarily people who were part of the negotiating process, but South Sudanese who I met at other fora who had nothing to do with this, but who also bore the scars of war to have an understanding of exactly what it is that had gone on. I remember that um, while I was in the process of working on the South Sudan mediation, I had the opportunity to meet a young lady who had been a victim of rape. I didn't meet her in South Sudan. I met her in Constantine, Algeria, on the sides of a Femwise meeting. And I had quite a long conversation with her through another South Sudanese lady who was there, who was interpreting. The the young lady didn't speak English herself. And she talked about the fact that she had been the victim of a gang rape and that she had a child, she had a son, And that whenever her son asked her what clan he belonged to, she wasn't able to express what clan he belonged to because she didn't even know who his father was. And listening to her, and listening to her tell the story of what had happened to her, how she had been managing and how she had been coping after the birth of her son, and of course some of the social stigma that she still has as a result of having a child out of wedlock Who was born out of rape. It it was one of those those situations that made very real for me the struggle of women who had been victims of sexual violence in conflict, gender-based violence, and who were having to continue to live with the consequences through the children that they had born. And when I heard her talking about her son, this was a mother who loved her child, a young mother who loved her child in spite of the fact that this was a child who was born out of sexual violence in conflict. And I couldn't for one moment imagine for myself how I would have reacted in the same circumstances. But listening to her and, of course, knowing very much about what had happened in terms of gender-based violence and sexual violence and conflict in South Sudan, reading a number of reports that had been prepared on the issue, it gave that whole issue life to me because I could put a face to those kind of acts and the consequences.
1: Because, you know, it's fair to say that in South Sudan that there's been terrible suffering and that, you know, there's a risk that those negotiations don't reflect the, you know, very real sacrifices that many people have made and the way in which the war has impacted them.
0: It's one thing to negotiate an agreement and to have a consensus, and it's another thing to implement it. I hope that in the implementation of the transitional agreement, that at this point in time they will reflect on some of those issues and why they need to be addressed. For instance, one of the things that we negotiated with them, both parties wanted to have a number of vice presidents. They wanted to have more than two vice presidents, which is what they present they had at the time, and they wanted to expand that to I think about five. And our view as the facilitators was that if you were going to have that expansion, then one of them had to be a woman. And We also suggested that in that case, in order not to have a a situation where you would have conflict among these senior leaders, was to make them responsible for particular clusters within the, the, and, and we sort of defined the ministries into various clusters in order for them to be able to focus on, as it were, supervising the ministers and the staff who were working in those particular sectors and to make sure that they achieved the objectives of the transition. And we also suggested that the lady vice president should be in charge of the social sector, precisely to make sure that the issues related to women, children, displaced persons were also going to be properly looked at and addressed. And the lady who is currently the vice president in the transition, the widow of um, Dr. John Garang, Madam Rebecca Garang, I think is eminently positioned to be able to make that case on behalf of the women of South Sudan.
1: You know, and when it comes to the inclusion of women, you know, you hear the argument sometimes that it goes against local custom. You know, what would you say to that?
0: I think that the world is dynamic and not static. And I think it's been recognised over. Uh, again, that when you adopt that kind of attitude, you don't allow your society to develop and grow. So I am certainly not one person who accepts that as an argument. I think that our societies have to become more modern, have to become more forward-looking, and women have to be able to take their place at the table.
1: You know, and when you look at the situation in South Sudan now, you know, there's a coalition government that's brought together the warring factions, and there's a kind of fragile piece of sorts. Do you look at the situation there more with hope or, or worry?
0: I think it's always important to be hopeful and to try and work for the best, but to be realistic about it, to understand that, you know, this thing could go off the tracks and and the expected outcomes might not be achieved. Now there is a transitional government. They still have some challenges in terms of appointing um, governors for the states. And of course, there's still going to be, difficulties that they will have to overcome after all these were ex-combatants who were fighting against each other and now they have found themselves working together in a power sharing arrangement it is a difficult process and it will require the continued engagement of the international community for as long as the international community is engaged is watching is paying attention is asking the right questions is reminding them that their actions are still being observed i believe that an effort will be made to come to a consensus and move the issues of these transit of the transition forward. On the other hand, if we are distracted because of COVID and because of all of the other peace and security situations that we have within, especially the Horn of Africa region at this time, then I think that we may run the risk of seeing ourselves in a situation where the parties to the conflict who have now become the parties in government may find themselves descending into arguments and 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 you know it would certainly have a negative impact on the transition so i think that as much as possible the international community should continue to pay attention to what is going on in south sudan
1: there we must end i'm afraid hannah tete thank you so much for being my guest in the mediator studio
0: you're very welcome adam thank you very much for having me
1: that was Hannah Tete in the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please do recommend it to a friend. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org where you can also read more about the forum itself. And you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Adam Talks peace We'll be taking a break but we'll be back soon with new episodes featuring more untold stories from backroom negotiations and real-life lessons from the front lines of peacemaking. So stay tuned. For the moment from me, Adam Cooper, thanks as ever for listening.